0: Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Podcast where we talk about everything, healthcare and technology. I'm your host James Somaru and this is your weekly Sunday session. Hey everybody, so for this week's Sunday session, I've got a conversation between me and Dr. Marla Morkin, who is certainly one to watch in digital health. She is a qualified doctor, she's now in digital health and medical innovation. She's featured on Forbes 30 under 30. She's one of Vogue's 10 rising female stars and a finalist for the UK Women of the Future Awards. She's at a health tech startup now. She is the host of the Digital Health Podcast for the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health Council. So definitely check that out. Else. and yeah, an advocate for women in science and medicine in general. So hope you enjoy this episode. All righty, so Marla, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing?
1: I am hot and sweaty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> aren't we all at the moment, at the time of recording? We're just having this insane heat wave, aren't we? I thought um, it
1: was like the hottest since the 1960s or something. So, I mean... <laughs> does
0: not bode well for the planet, does it?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. Not, not for my like my health <laughs> or my no, well-being. No,
0: I completely, I completely agree. It's uh, it's also really special doing podcast in this heat because the fan that would normally be on behind me is no longer on because it oh needs God. to sound like it's taking off in order to give me any relief. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm currently literally just just coping in like 40 degree heat at the moment, being in a. A flat in between two flats below and above me. So, oh anyway,
1: typical English fashion
0: talking about the weather. I know. Twenty-five <laughs> percent um, <laughs> of the listeners are in the US, so you guys in the US must just think, "What on earth are you talking about every episode, James?" With the, with the weather, but anyway. Um, so, Marla, look, it's, it's it's a pleasure having you on. Obviously, someone I've seen from afar from a little while i mean we, we were just chatting off air that it's you know surprising we haven't met yet yeah. being in uh, being in health tech and being in podcasting it's a small pool that you're picking from when you're doing all that sort of stuff um but i would love to know a bit about your background a bit about what led you into health health tech podcasting and everything that you're doing basically so yeah just uh, give us a bit of your story
1: yeah awesome see first of all, thanks for having me on i'm so so thrilled. I love having chats with um with other podcasters as well because you get you get a bit more nitty gritty sometimes don't you? that's it
0: a bit more honest yeah. a bit more, hopefully yeah. hopefully an easier edit, although it never normally goes that way
1: yeah <laughs> So, so I'm Marla um as I said, I qualified as a medical doctor at Imperial College London. And very quickly realized throughout the course of my, you know, my time at university and my short stint working as a doctor on the front line that I'm a bit more of a tech geek than, I, than I'd than let on originally, right? I love technology. I love seeing how we can get innovations to the patients, to improve healthcare. Um, if it was up to me, you know, the, the whole of the NHS would have been reformed by now. But obviously, it's a different kettle <laughs> of fish than yeah, that. Yeah, indeed. Um, but yeah, so so I worked in different health tech startups during university. I was really fortunate to go to um, the European Space Agency um, and also down to Harvard's Digital Health Accelerator, um, and also saw firsthand what you know lower income countries such as Malawi, who are building a healthcare system from scratch. Mm. How are they using technology to you know bottom up start, um, and it's fantastic. So. I got really, I got my teeth into it, and I, um, and then I just saw so many healthcare inequalities. And I was working as a doctor just from day one. Right, you have patients that come in, and they. They're basically, you know, they've got chronic conditions, they come in because of a recurring symptom, we can't do anything when they come in through A&E, and we discharge them back to their GP. And for them, you know, it's super frustrating, I can't speak on behalf of them, but I, I knew it was super frustrating for me as um you know, as as me doing my um, my work as a doctor. So I knew I needed to fix it. And that's why I've kind of ended up working now full time as a head of market development at a healthcare startup called Cellin, which is looking at chronic conditions and pain management. It's also, we can go into it later if you want to, but essentially um, on the other side of things, I'm also doing some cool other projects. So I work a lot in diversity in healthcare and technology and um, worked with Barbie and Vogue and other cool people to to promote some diversity things. I was in a photo shoot with Naomi Campbell, but I'm five oh Oh my goodness. So really funny. What a
0: name drop that is. Oh my I god.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and um, and yeah, and I host this uh Royal Society of Medicines Digital Health podcast, which um which yeah is super fun, super time consuming, but um but it is um it's such a blast talking to these people. What do you find? Do you enjoy talking on the podcast? Did you find it more of a chore now? <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a good. It's a good question. I still enjoy. I still enjoy the podcast. Like speaking to people and just getting opinions, and I don't know, diving deep into topics and stuff. I I enjoy that. I've I've always enjoyed that. I've always found people fascinating. You know, whether I'm traveling the world or whatever it is, I like having deep conversations with people and finding out beliefs and all that sort of stuff, and and debate and all of that right which is what has led me here and I suppose it means that the conversations themselves are actually relatively easy and straightforward for me because I just genuinely enjoy it you know so I think and you'll probably find that of most podcasters I imagine the chore as you all know is always the organization of it the (laughs) editing afterwards the sign off that you need and as your guests trust me go up the chain you need increasing amounts of sign off um, Mm -hmm. from increasing amounts of people and so that can slow your pipeline down and a nice six-week buffer is no longer there because none of them have been signed off, and <laughs> then you need to panic and think, "Oh my goodness, what do I talk about now on an episode?" Because I've just got a monologue, and maybe I'll talk about my week. And <laughs> <laughs> is that of interest to anyone? So yeah, the, as you'll know, that that's the bit of podcasting that is is less glamorous. Um, fortunately, I have Jared who edits my podcasts now um or, or most of them anyway when they've got guests and that need a fair amount of work doing so so he he does a lot of them and uh thank you jared because you thank might be you listening jared. to this <laughs> um but yeah look so i I'm, I'm super interested in your background because obviously you're i mean a massive overachiever right in terms of you've you've not been on the planet long enough to have done all that stuff from being in a a photo shoot with Naomi Campbell to you know being part of a startup and becoming a doctor and there's so much I mean what has led you to doing all that stuff I mean have you just been following what you enjoy and just seeing where it goes how have you put that career together
1: it was that's very kind of you first of all and it was a complete lie that was given to me and I was chasing a lie and I'll, I'll explain basically I thought that everyone knew what they wanted to do when they grow up. I thought that's what adults just kind of know, right? It's like a gut feeling or something, you know, like a Disney fairy tale moment. You just know what you want to do. And I yeah, never standard. had that. And um, and you look around and everyone feels really like fit. You know, people are like, I'm an SEO manager. You know, I am the, you know, the head of sales. And you know, you think that they really knew and they created their career path. And so, when I was looking at this at age 18, no one told me everyone was making up as they go. So I started panicking, and I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Right? I'm like, I'm doing medicine, but is it the actual practicing as a clinician I want to do? Or is it something else? And so, I kind of just went off on a on a on a like a rampage, to put it lightly, to try and work <laughs> out what I wanted to do. Nice. And I tried every summer, every holiday to do something else, whether it be like a week stint at the Guardian or like you know working in my mum's hair salon or something you know I was trying everything and then it wasn't until final year that like someone just said to me very plainly and it was someone senior so I knew that they were, weren't lying to me that like you know my we all have imposter syndrome and none of us know what we are doing we're just all making up as we go yeah and then it was and then I listened to like Michelle Obama and that law, and they, they all say exactly the same and I was like why have I been doing all of this?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but ultimately it's been really helpful, right? Because I now know what I like and what I don't like. So along the process, I have kind of figured that out, but, um, it wasn't that moment that came to me. It was more of a, like an organized process that that made me get there. And I definitely recommend that not all sitting and waiting for that moment to come, but going out and working out what you want to do, right? But maybe just not so intensely as I did
0: I don't know. I mean, it's pretty good what you've managed to achieve since by going down that method. It's so, I, I completely and utterly agree with you, especially from the point of view of medics, mm. because you'll know, if you were like me, you went straight to medical school from you from uh, from actual school and there was no gap. There was no figuring out how the world works or what a normal job even is or what you can actually do. I didn't understand anything. I just had it in my head from the age of 12 that I was going to be a doctor. And mm. so you, I didn't have any time to figure it out. I didn't taste anything else. I didn't... Yeah. And you've just got to automatically enjoy it. You've just got to hope that out of all of the billion things you could have done, that you've just randomly selected the, the absolute correct one for your entire life and career at some random point when you're picking your GCSEs. Like that's, that's ultimately what it comes down to. And I think it is, you know, when you look at the US system doing four years of college first, can you imagine the amount of people that are obviously put off doing medicine in that four years that have an idea to do it just simply because they're around people that have done it? They've got four more years of just seeing the world and and figuring stuff out in their twenty. You know, oh man, like it, it's it's bizarre. It, it is so bizarre how we do it, and I'm not surprised that so many people do other stuff. But I, I what I want to say here is that for people listening that want to do medicine, or indeed that are in medicine, what you've done in tasting other stuff with every spare bit of time you've got is absolutely the right thing to do to figure out not only if that is the right career to step into, but actually, is there a way that I can learn a new skill that can be integrated into my life and career, even as a doctor, you know, if you want to do computer science or data science, or those things which can really change the world in terms of medicine, do it and still be a doctor or do it and be that you once were a doctor, but now you do this sort of stuff with all that knowledge and, and expertise and stuff. I, I think it's such a good way to to approach a career. Um, and, and just out of interest, I mean, did you practice as a doctor for very long? For
1: So I practiced from uh, August till like the start of December. And that was, wow. I thought that I was gonna do a lot longer, if I'm honest with you. But it was like, it was a combination of me really not enjoying the day job and like missing being, I know it's crazy, but I miss being in an office. Like I miss my yeah. emails. I miss my 9 like to yeah. I missed that. And, um, and, and, you know, and so, but it was a combination of that. And also because of like family circumstances. So both my parents got quite unwell in October and, you know, my mom had had a heart attack. My dad had an open heart surgery mm-hmm. and as a junior doctor, you, are have so much guilt when you are not on the wards right you know you just feel so guilty that you're leaving your team understaffed that you're leaving a service you know you're leaving patients potentially in a situation and that guilt i couldn't do anything with it so i took my annual leave that i could i took my compassionate leave then i was stuck my parents still needed help you know i still needed to go home and be with my mum. But I couldn't because I had no time left. Mm-hmm. And then you can't do as many swaps as you want, right? Like, and 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 so it just became, I could see, and it was like a flash forward to my future, right? That like, this is probably in my 20s, the easiest time in my life, right? There are gonna be bigger, harder things coming up. And what type of lifestyle do I personally want? And what type of, you know, they say, what was it, they also saying, if you wanna see what your life is gonna be like, follow your boss home from work. Interesting. See what car they drive, see what house they live in, see who opens the door to them when they get home. Mm-hmm. And you know, and don't just take one boss like look at your, you know, a range of them. But like on average, when I looked at them, I was like, I don't think this is the lifestyle I want.
0: Do you know what I had exactly the same thought when I'm in fact I've literally just got off the uh the well, a podcast with Mark <laughs> from Aviva who who actually said something that I've that I've rarely ever heard. But never heard. I'll just say it, I've never heard this. He had a clinical supervisor that encouraged him to look at skills and careers outside of medicine. And in since since doing medicine and since being in medical school, since being a lot, I've never heard that before ever. I've never heard of of any role model in medicine talking about any life outside medicine. Mm-hmm. I can remember trying to leave medicine. A few times, in fact, and the most recent time in anaesthetic when I was when I was an anaesthetist, I was I was going around trying to find, well, initially trying to find role models that would keep me in medicine. Initially, trying to think, okay, who, who who can I look at here that I that I want the life of? And same as you, I couldn't I couldn't find that. I I couldn't I couldn't find anybody with the exact career that I wanted or with the same lifestyle or any of those things. And so for me, it just wasn't right. I was super jealous. And I always say this, I was super jealous of the people that loved it. I was always yeah. super jealous of the people that love the clinical stuff that love the science that love the patient care as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved 30, 40% of it, which isn't enough. Mm-hmm. And I say that to med students as a well, lot people that want to do medicine and become med- you've got to love it. Like you really you, have- it's okay to start medicine as a, as a university course, You've got to love it, or else you're not going to get through the exams. You've got to, and those exams are not going to stop, by the way, and, and all that sort of stuff. But no, and it was interesting hearing Mark, you know, just saying that he had this clinical advisor that encouraged him to look at things outside. Mark ended up going to BCG and ended up going to, or going now, you know, managing director of Aviva in the UK, you know, a massive health tech startup in diabetes um that just raised 21 million in series B and all that stuff. So, wow. you know, and, and that's what's available if you've got the right support. And I think, Oh, you just yeah you, you don't often get it is all i'd say in medicine it might be getting better now i, I,
1: I is, actually but. yeah i mean i actually went back to imperial last year and i gave a talk to the Med-Ed Society society yeah how to write a cv and put a linkedin together yeah and you know how to not just on your medical elective and work it clinically, but how to like create a medical elective that you really want, you know, how to do all of these things. And it was like from the basics, because as you said, no one teaches it to you, right? Mm. And I take this analogy that you think of the people that applied to medicine from school, right? They're the all rounders, they're the sporty, make, like, caring, you know, very interesting people that like, you know, and they're like, they're called the medics at school, you know, they're applying to medicine. And then They're crushed year on year. They're stifled. They can't express any creativity within their course. They become... Comparing themselves against each other, which is crazy because the fact that they've got into medical school is all, I mean, I think it's 10% of the world go to university. I might be making that figure up, someone told me, it to me. And then all of that, you know, medicine is one of the top degrees, right? It, you know, that's viewed by society. So why on earth are you comparing yourself to each other and thinking that you're a failure? It's just, it baffles me, right? And so what they do is that after the six years, they make you feel like the only thing you know how to do. Is medicine it's it's an induction and one of our professors on our last day of med school said you've not been learning you know um medicine here for the last six years you've been learning a new way of life you've Mm. been learning a new system you know from all the things like you know how to talk about a sexual history to someone Mm. because that's really weird and awkward otherwise right and I, and I think that you compare it to your colleagues who may be done like geography or classics or you know, any other degree for three years. They have the creativity and the passion to go out after year three and go and find and forge their own career path. And why have we done it so much so that medics don't have that when actually the starting point, you know, they had the leg up. They, they were going to go and they were going to go and save the world and change people's lives. And then we crush it. And why do we crush it?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 well, the why the why is an interesting one, um, and you know, I think about I did stuff at Health Education England and looked at the the workforce planning and the and, and the education to a point, and I did a degree in education actually, specifically clinical education to, to learn about teaching and all the rest of it. The why is an interesting one, and I I sometimes think it's big systems will evolve and they will. Um, that it's almost like Darwinism. Like the the system, the system will continue living. It just knows it needs to change. And I think, in order to retain a workforce in a in an in an environment which is extremely challenging, it's almost like the system has learned to remove any option and choice from those yeah. people. And I yeah. don't know how that happens. I don't know the nitty gritty, but I almost think. And I think as well, you know, I can remember trying to leave medicine to, to pursue all the stuff I'm doing now and to, you know, make bigger impacts and all those sure things. That. Thanks for you too, right? But I can, I can remember that being a really difficult time for me with my own identity
1: mm-hmm. and my
0: own pride. I was so proud of being a doctor, like genuinely, I, and I still am proud that I achieved that. But I think there's always going to be a bit of a chip on my shoulder that like I never completed it. I never became a consultant my friends are now becoming consultants and i'm at that age and there's always this thing for me i'm really opening up there's this there's this thing i'm really exposing myself of like there's there's a i failed there's something i failed at and you could argue that i chose to go elsewhere but but I don't know. It, it it seems in part like a failure. So I, t- I take I take this personal identity hit as well. And I think there's so much of your identity that's wrapped up because, as you said, it's it's part of your life. It is it is it is more than just a career. It's a life. And I don't know. It's 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 a tough one. And I think yeah, we we might crush choice. But we Stockholm syndrome is mentioned a lot, and all those different things that you fall in love with your captor and all yeah. those things as as, oh, as a God. medic, but but I think that, but to, to put, to push it, I suppose, into a bit more positive note, I think for those that do want to break out, they've got to really want to break out and do something different. Um, and so for people like you and I that have done that, we have known that it's what we wanted to do. And we had to be so certain of that, that it, has meant that we've landed on our feet it's not often that you'll find someone who leaves medicine that's then clueless about what they do because you it requires such a such a you know strength of belief to do it yeah no absolutely absolutely and
1: and you know what what you said so openly there about you feeling like perhaps you're a failure is is really powerful because it speaks volumes to the reaction of people had when i was leaving and i think that I had a lot of time to think and I think that a lot of it stems from this concept of lifetime learning as a doctor mm. that you are dropping out of a process as if you're dropping out of university. Yeah. Because, because like actually to be a doctor, you're not you're not finishing medical school until you're a consultant.
0: <laughs> well, you're a trainee until you're a consultant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, By nice. literal definition, you're a trainee okay. at like forty years old. Having done a job for 20 years, you're a trainee. Oh my goodness.
1: It's crazy, isn't it? And so... If you think about like any of your friends that have left, like, I don't know, like the music industry to go and do sports or anything, everyone applauds them for following their passion. The amount of people that we know that have left consultancy to then go on to do something else, start their own business, right? The amount of people we know that have left banking to go off and do something else and maybe something, you know, a bit more nicer to the world. I'm only joking. But, you know, we (laughs) we applaud them. But in the system, I remember someone saying to me, one of my consultants, Don't worry, Marley, you'll find a job that you can cope with. And I was like, And they did because they don't know me. They don't know anything about me. They knew nothing about any of my other. And, you know, I'm not saying that I've got this halo above me of like, you know, health tech world, but I had worked really hard, but no one had ever taken the chance to sit down and go, So what are you interested in? Hmm. And because they don't know you, they judge you as a number in the system. And they're like, Well, if you're leaving, it's obviously because you can't cope. And I, and I, and I found only one doctor who was like, well, actually two. one was it, one was a junior doctor who like was really, really kind. And he would take me for, you know, coffees and lunches as well as so I was making my mind up and he, it was really good about it. And another one was a consultant who on a weekend ward round, I, I was like, he was like, Oh, what do you want to do when you're older? And I was like, you know, what, what do you want to specialize? And I was like, actually, I've already handed in my notice. Wow. And and he went, right, we're going for lunch. So he took me to lunch and we had a really interesting chat about, you know, how, how even getting to consultancy people put, you know, how you put so much emphasis on when you're a consultant, everything will be better, but it's not a lot of the time, right? So even when you get there, that, that jewel, you know, that jewel that we've been waiting for, if that's not what was worth it, then what was the process for? And, and he invited me around to dinner. And I liked the, uh, the, the story you gave me around the, um, the guy from Aviva, because I, I genuinely think that having a few people in your corner being like, you're not abandoning patience, you're not doing harm to society, you shouldn't feel like a failure, you're not a bad person, you're just going to do what you wanna do, is really important and it's just not hard enough.
0: Yeah. And uh, you know what? I I wondered if it was changing um, with, I don't know, more graduate entry stuff or people that have done other things. And there's a lot more side hustles now, even from medics that you see on YouTube and, and podcasts and all this sort of stuff. I do wonder if it's changing. It just seems like it might take a while because I think ultimately it'll come down to time. And I think it comes down to the way people train. And I think, I know there's always been these conversations at Health Education England about changing the way that people train and giving people time to do different things and work on other things and work a bit more flexibly and, right. and all these things. But the reality is that those conversations have been going on a long time and there is an establishment. There is an establishment that, that doesn't want things to change. Um, and you'll know this as well. Like I remember even like- doctors. Right, there's a shortage yeah. of yes. Yeah, well, yeah. It, so, so how can those two realities exist at the same time? And uh, yeah, it, yeah. There's, there's like, lo- I mean, there's loads of examples, right? But I suppose again, to turn it a bit more positive there are things that you can do outside of medicine. There are ways of tasting that stuff, which you did. I think that's the most important thing. I think if you've got, if you put it into context of all the other things that you could do, so for example, you know, a week at the guardian, a week at a startup, a week doing all these different things that you think you might enjoy, you can then try medicine in the same way. A medical degree is still extremely valuable. It's as as valuable, you know, as any other degree. So actually, by tasting all that stuff while you still can, you're going to get a really good idea if, as if you do want to be a doctor. And and I, I don't want this. Yeah, I don't, I don't want this point to to go lost either. That for those that love it and enjoy it, it's the most rewarding and valuable career mm. that I can possibly. think I take
1: of. my hat off to everyone, especially during the pandemic that worked. Um,
0: absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's it's more about how do we as a community get the, get the people who enjoy it the most doing the job and actually. Seeing medical school as potentially more of a filter, and just saying perhaps there's more tiers of doctor here. Perhaps there's a management tier that become management that have got clinical experience. Perhaps there's a technology tier that that get more involved in technology. Perhaps there's a financial tier that get more involved in that stuff. So, I think okay. it's interesting that, that this is where this has gone. Like talking about the future training, but I think you know that. In terms of solving problems with health tech, you need people that understand the clinical world across investment, technology, clinical, and managerial. You need people across the whole system that understand all of each other's worlds and the empathy to understand each other. In and it's the
1: right? It's the convergence now of knowledge, and this decade will really show it, right? We've got the rise of artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of these things, and we're looking for cross-spectrum experts. We're looking for the doctors that understand the technology that you know that they can lead projects. That we were looking for, you know, people that have a wide range of skill sets, the generalists now, because mm. actually, we've seen in the system that it can get really, uh, what's the word, like fragmented otherwise. And to be able to push forward these innovations, we need people with a broad skill set. So I think it's really exciting when you see these other, you know, loads of different opportunities coming up, like the NHS uh, uh, entrepreneur stuff and the clinical fellow stuff and like opportunities we can do that. But as you say, it needs to be, we need to be uplifting people to push things forward because right now we're kind of stuck like on the system in the NHS that is like, built in the 20s uh, 20th century even you know like i like I, I just don't i'm sad how we're still you know doing order rounds with paper notes and you know we report to the consultant the consultant comes back at 5 p.m like what is that system because in any other workplace, yeah. it's the same i could you imagine that in like uh, banking yeah
0: well correct and i think there's two things that come to mind there so the first one that i want to ask you about is you spoke did you speak to eric topple on your podcast no i know oh you didn't okay that must have been um that must have been Mustafa's. but the other thing then was um the uh the example you gave of malawi talking about uh building a system from scratch which again you know in the nhs it's like we are really gonna struggle to do that but in that example then how are they doing that
1: So really interestingly, I mean, they are the lowest income income country in the world, right, basically. And so what you're dealing with is people that, you know, can't be paying for their, their, their treatment. We need to be giving it to them for like very low price and we need to be giving them something really good. They are very well funded but for, for communicable diseases from the Billam and the Gates Foundation, for things like mm. this. But there's a, there's a push now for things to, to become more country independent and less reliant on grants because that's the sustainable model, right? So they were, well, as I was there, they were looking at things like, how do we fund our own vaccines rather than relying on grants? What, how do we start moving money, you know, into ambulances and like, where do we get that money from and things like that, right? The interesting thing about technology was that they all had um, in our area, like uh, you know, it was like a sheet of paper with barcode on and then the patients would just scan it in and up would pop their medical records in a super basic system, right? Mm. And it, what it did- It's a QR was,
0: code, basically.
1: Yeah, a QR <laughs> code. It, it used technology to support healthcare, but what we do in the NHS is we try and do healthcare and then feel like we have to use the tools right? Like, oh, we've done the healthcare. Now we need to put it into the system, write the notes up. I don't know. Do a discharge letter online. Do the e-prescribing. Oh, I
0: see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We don't integrate it really well into our our mindset. We see it as a hindrance.
0: Yeah. Well, it literally is because it's separate time. Mm. If you just have to go and do your surgery you didn't have to write and if you just had to go and clerk your patient in a and e and actually just get them the treatment and then you didn't have to write the notes that's half of your time that you gain back almost exactly
1: so how can we make this easier for for doctors worldwide but also for doctors here to um be able to do their job hmm. and how do we make it easier for patients to feel empowered to be able to take control of their own healthcare which is their job as well right hmm. You know, and we're the worst patients as doctors, isn't it? You know, we're the worst because because we don't really know how to empower a patient. We sit there not empowering ourselves, we <laughs> well, and we don't go to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. You know, and um, and I think like some of the work that I'm doing at, at Cellin, we're looking at you know what what tools could help with chronic pain in the future. What technology tools are out there? How do we How do we collate them together into something that could be really interesting for patients to use, but also providers? And how do we streamline the service so it's not fragmented? Because especially in chronic pain, you are going pillar to post, right? You start your GP, then you go to every specialist under the sun, everyone deems you like not fit for their specialty. Then you like are pooped out the other end for mm. want of a better word, right? With like nothing. So you kind of just sent to you back to your GP and you don't have any support. And then starts the cycles of, you know, trying to uh, self-medicate. We have 1.4 million UK patients self-medicating with medical cannabis right now, James. Mm. It is... You know, and how many doctors know how to talk to a patient about medical cannabis? And again, it's another thing that we're doing at Cellin is trying to understand, you know, it's been legal to prescribe it since 2018 for an unmet clinical need, but why aren't we prescribing it and what is holding us back? And it's exactly the same as looking at innovation in the NHS, you know, it's the barriers and it's the system is just, as you say, it's just so blocked off. It's just so blocked off. It's so... Difficult to infiltrate, and and what it's doing is it's sending innovations to America. It's making them grow there, and then the NHS buys it back for like a lot more money. (laughs) What are we doing? Like it just makes no sense. Allegedly, is all I say there,
0: Uh, and certainly not for everything. But I I take your I take your point though. It is difficult to innovate. There are barriers to innovation largely. Through adoption. That's something that I've learned a lot in my career that a lot of the best products already exist. They might already exist in other sectors, but actually, they might already exist in healthcare, to be perfectly honest. The the struggle is actually the adoption of it. The reason I asked about Eric Topple is because in the Topple review, I remember the, the one thing that really chimed with me was that he alluded to the fact that there should be this kind of role. And to be honest, I might be falsely remembering this because it fits with my own confirmation bias. But <laughs> I'm gonna say it anyway. And yeah, Guess say that, that. that Eric topple That's definitely that. said that <laughs> it could be it could be my interpretation. But a role that understands the clinical, but understands the business, understands the technology that sits as a filter for new technology for a department. And I think that is a really It sounds really simple. Someone that just understands the startup space can critically appraise a startup for technology, for business, for finance, for all these different things, but then that person can act as the filter for things that come in. It seemed like a really appropriate way of getting over this adoption barrier that you give that person a budget, you give them targets of return on investment, be that in year one, two, three, whatever it is. But somebody who's then accountable, whose job it is to bring in new technology and actually make things more efficient whilst pleasing everybody, but you actually make a specific role for that because it seems that I think what you're alluding to in that in that kind of you know barriers being up and all the rest of it. I've seen this firsthand. I've been in decision-making meetings with new technology startups and finance directors chief exec but you know i've been in those meetings with people and there's a lot of committee decision and there's a lot of there's a lot of fear because it's sort of the perfect storm of how not to innovate because you you give everybody the power to say no but you you make it mandatory that everybody has to say yes Mm -hmm. so anybody one person can veto but you need 20 20 yeses for it to happen and there's no middle ground and it's it's a really difficult place to be, but it, it does challenge the best technology to get in. And I think what you might be descri- you know, described by, by things have, being easier in the US is that the payment model is different. The way that they're incentivized is different because those insurance companies and, and hospitals are incentivized to attract patients to them. So they're looking for new technology and more shiny, shiny stuff for a more derogatory way to put it. But you know, yeah, do you know what I mean? they have marketing like,
1: departments, in a of hospital. Of course.
0: Of co- Of course, because that 's the way that their businesses are run it 's just very different in the public sector where it's more important to save money than it is to make money as a business and it 's a very different business model selling savings than selling making money because you can save time for doctors, but unless you sack them that 's not a cash in hand saving and that 's where it becomes difficult you know or, you know I say doctors, but it 's obviously all clinicians that that these that these technologies help right it, it, but it 's a very different business model where you are literally saying, well, actually, if you bring this technology in, loads of patients will want to use it. So they're going to come to you and every person through the door is more revenue. It's just a, it's just a different model and, and I suppose different in all those different ways. But tell me more about selling then. Tell me, tell me about what you guys actually do. And um, you've mentioned a few things that you, that you do in terms of, I guess, products or, or services. But yeah, just tell me a bit about what you're actually up to
1: um okay cool i mean like i love selling i could talk about it all day so you're gonna have to stop me if you get bored of it
0: i will stop you <laughs> <laughs> i've got a hard stop in 18 minutes so you'll definitely get
1: <laughs> okay so starting with chapter one now <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's so, new so, so selling is a team of four of us it's a very small seed funded startup and eric and ben started it ben is an uh ONG consultant at St. George's Hospital in London. Really, really lovely guy, very much cares about patients. And, um, and Eric is uh, the business guy. He understands like finances a lot more than they teach us at medical school. Right. He's ex Goldman Sachs. He understands the two of them together. They saw in 2018, as we were talking about the, the change to the medical cannabis, um, the law and and, the regulation around it and they saw that there were huge barriers still if you're a patient and you want to get medical cannabis or cannabis in general right for your for your numerous different diseases where there's you know limited evidence on Mm. the options you have james are this you can one go to the illicit market you can two you can you know try and wrangle your way through the nhs in some shape or form which is super difficult Mm. there's not many doctors that understand it three you can go to the netherlands or go abroad and try and get some products four you can try and import products and do it in a private way so like go to a private cannabis clinic
0: and what and just before you go so why is that then so where is kind of medical cannabis along the along the line of regulation and being able to be prescribed and evidence and where is that in the uk then
1: So okay, so if we like think about morphine, for example, it's a schedule, you know, schedule two drug. So is is cannabis (laughs) schedule two drug. The way that you can prescribe it in the UK is, um, and this was after a lot of lobbying efforts from parents that are prescribing it to their children with epilepsy. Right. a consultant that is a specialist in this particular field that you have the condition for can prescribe you medical cannabis. Got it. For an unmet clinical need, or for, for a
0: need, got it. Okay.
1: Something that is on the nice guidelines. Right. That, there have been about, I think, from our knowledge, four prescriptions on the NHS for you know for just <laughs> medical cannabis that's been funded, and more than five hundred that have been done privately. My sure. problem is is that no one wakes up in the morning and goes, "Do you know what today you know i'd I'd really like to go and get you know some insulin you know no, no one does that you know like in the yeah. but no one no one knows so sure. you know, wake up in the morning and you're like, "I really want to go and get some cannabis from the sure. cannabis clinic and and so the conversation just needs to be a lot more entwined, so what they did is that they joined. A project called Project 2021, which is uh, led by Professor David Nutt and Drug Sciences, an incredible gentleman, and they um, are enrolling 20,000 patients over the next two years to understand the safety and efficacy of medical cannabis more, to be able to you know direct the nice guidelines further. And and the problems kind of sit with the fact that the other countries that have you know legalized cannabis or have you know had some type of da- like regulation on it, um, adjustment, they've gone for a different market which is not pharmaceutical. Whereas for us in the UK, we treat cannabis as a pharmaceutical product, right? Mm. Which is great, it's the way it should be, but it means we have to go through the same processes. Mm. And so it's not like it's frustrating for patients who want it now and, you know, they want the evidence now, but we have to go through the NICE guidelines evidence. In the meantime, we have at Salen a really interesting supply chain. So we don't own any of the supply chain, right? We are here for for access, but we have paired up, you know, different components like a Um, you know, pharmaceutical elements of the supply chain. And then what happens is we have a partner manufacturer here in the UK. So we import the raw ingredients for the THC, the CBD. And if there is a prescription that comes through, instead of the patient having to go abroad or wait 30 days for an importation, we can, within 72 hours, get the product made for them from their prescription and get it sent to the patient's door which is like game changing and for a lot less cost and, you know, and now we're doing project 2021, which has capped the price as well for patients. So it's super exciting. And then alongside that, we are also working on like bigger projects because of the seed, like obviously you've got to be working on the bigger products as well, which is all about, you know, broader, not just medical cannabis, but, chronic conditions in general, how can we enhance that with technology? So there's more to come there, but um, but I won't reveal too much now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. Understood. So, okay. Why this field for you? As somebody who has tasted loads of stuff and done lots of different things in your short career so far, but very varied, Why? why this? Why now?
1: So it's something I never thought I'd get involved in. I don't know if you've ever had any interest in medical cannabis research or anything. It's not come to mind. <laughs> you know, we don't get taught at medical school maybe like no. one lecture, right? I but um it's the you know, it's the it's the treatment that we give the patients that are taking cannabis. You know, they tell us when they come into the hospital. I take cannabis as the only thing that helps my pain or I take cannabis as the only thing that helps me during my um, chemotherapy treatment to deal with the nausea. And what do we do? We write it under the drugs and substance abuse bit in our history, uh, history uh, making you know, notes. And we don't ask them anything about it. We don't support them. We don't ask them if they want to move on to a medical prescription of it. We don't see where they get it from. We don't check it safe. We completely neglect it, even though it is part of the picture of their members and that really interested me. But but essentially I joined the team because I like the team, right? Ben, Arno and Eric, the three of them together are just, they're, they're moving, they're moving things, they're game-changing, they've got the right ethos, they've got the right the mindset. And in a startup, you pivot so many times, mm. right? That It doesn't really matter what <laughs> the initial concept is. If you love the team and you work together really well, you can grow anything really excitingly. So yeah, I mean, I love their mission and I love the team. So I'm here now and I've actually started <laughs> the medical, uh, cannabis women's, um, it's like a networking group in the UK. If anyone listening is any much interested in it, we have like like 30 members or so who are like, mm we all get together every three weeks and we just talk about the industry and research and things to move it forward. And we highlight each other's work and we help to collaborate because I'm telling you something, James, we thought the tech industry was very male dominated. When you go into the medical campus industry, I'm talking like they are, it's just a very male dominated world. So I mean, like it's really exciting. I'm great. I'm able to do my two passions, which is, and I feel like my personal mission, right, is, to help address healthcare inequalities um, be it locally and internationally but also um, increase diversity in the space so I'm basically doing two and I get to do my RSM podcast very
0: cool
1: I'm I'm loving life very cool
0: good (laughs) for you good for you and I think it's not easy to find the life that you love and it is a moving target and it's always important to to follow what you enjoy and all those things but I think central to that is knowing what you want to do and knowing the type of thing that's most important to you so as you've said it's not about medical cannabis for you it's the fact that it's a really great team that's growing something that helps people and you can make impact by doing Mm -hmm. things and being part of structures that you believe in and pushing in concepts that you believe in right I mean that's Sounds it's it sounds great, and I, I don't I don't want to let you go without talking about obviously your podcast, and mm-hmm. obviously you spoke about it a bit at the start, but um, yeah, the Royal Society of Medicine's podcast, what a gig that is to <laughs> put you on the map. Um, and I see loads of stuff on LinkedIn, and, uh, and the guests that you get are really good because you're leveraging that brand, so I'm very jealous there. But um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you must, you must get an insane uh, amount of, uh, of people that want to be on that thing. But anyway, yeah, tell me, tell me a bit about the podcast. How did you get the gig? Um, yeah, I'm super interested.
1: So there is a, um, in that Royal Society of Medicine, they don't actually like organize the events themselves. They have volunteer groups of different societies, right? So it's like the Digital Health Council, the Ophthalmology Council, the, you know, Oncology Council. And they run the events, maybe four or five events a year. And it will be a team of like 10 to 15 people that do each. So I applied to be on the Digital Health Council at the Royal Society of Medicine. And during my interview, I was like, where is the digital health that we're doing at the Digital Health Council? And I was like, you know, I might be young because everyone on the council is incredible people. They are so, so awesome, and they've achieved so much for digital health and made some really game changing things so i I was obviously young, but I was like i've got the energy I've got the interest to try and disseminate what we're doing here at the r s m to a wider audience. You know it's unfortunate that the type of people that still go to conferences we're not getting the younger generation that are yeah. excited by it, right. You know, it's quite boring to go to conferences. Yeah, just go on TikTok a- live
0: these days. That's the best way to get any information across.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I mean, like I get all my medical info from TikTok now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: don't read a book anymore.
1: Yeah. Um so and so, you know, um, what can we do to it to um start to inform people about the cool things that are going on at the Royal Society of Medicine? And the digital health councils work, but they're not gonna to come to the events or they might come to the events. If they know about the podcast, then they like might, you know, come after. So we worked on it for a year. It was, you know, a year effort of working out exactly the pitch and worked with a really lovely lady called Fabiola from the marketing team at the Royal Site of Medicine. And um, when it was ready to go, we recorded a test one. And um, essentially it was people that had spoken at our events he then um we would interview instead of like doing like a video summary or anything like that boring we would just do a podcast you know how was your how was your event how was your speech they tell us more about it give us like a 15 minute snippet of it digestible you know over 60 percent of our audience are under 35 years old so it's for the younger you know for the younger market but also accessible to experts as well and because I'm interviewing I'm asking the questions like you know the really basic questions that maybe other people would know because I'm young and I'm new and I'm novice in this field yeah yeah um so yeah that's what we do and now because of lockdown um the Royal society of medicine are doing webinars and i kind of got a bit more of a license to um interview interesting people that are linked to the rsm but might not be speaking right now because you can't so yeah been a bit more exciting about that but yeah that's that's essentially the gig i remember when i found out that i got it it was i was out for dinner with my friends and i was like oh my god I
0: got yeah. <laughs> that's so good it definitely suits your personality being a podcast host for the uh for the hour that i've known you um you're definitely a very good speaker and uh yeah I can imagine it suits you. It suits you very well. I mean, do you what? What have you What have you found since podcasting? I know that I don't actually get the chance to talk to many other podcasters. Um, I talked to Peter Birch from Talking Health Tech in, the, in in Australia. I don't think I've had any other podcasters on, although I might be forgetting one. But um, yeah, have have you found it?
1: I'm going to ask you first. Have you found it?
0: Have I found it? I have found it just the, the most incredible way to build a loyal audience. That for, for the right reasons. And what I mean by that is, I think you, you can't hide behind glib statements or a fancy profile photo or a nice few LinkedIn posts. You can't hide behind that when there's a hundred hours of you speaking online right? So it exposes you. And so if you are out to genuinely add value to an audience, if you are out for the right reasons, if you are out to entertain people to do whatever it is, whatever your true purpose is with your podcast, it's coming out. It's coming out. And so I'm, I'm just glad that when people get in touch with me, they're like, it's great to hear these conversations. Like I'm, I learned this, like, thanks for doing one with this person. So like, all of that just fuels me to keep going because I was even saying like literally yesterday, it was a long day and there was a lot to do. And my six episode pipeline was completely removed because too many people need to sign off mm-hmm. uh, podcasts podcast. Yeah. And so you write, but you, you get to that point, right? Of like, mm. I actually haven't got one to put out now. And like, this is, I've now got to solve this problem. So it creates a lot of time intensive problems for you if you want to be consistent, if you want to serve your audience correctly and all the rest of it. But I guess that's what that's what fuels me is that I'm doing this for others and I'm doing this so people can be inspired. And so if I don't put an episode out every Thursday, which by the way, I didn't last week because it was GE Healthcare and not because they didn't sign it off in time, but actually because the the platform which I published on was having some errors and all the rest of it. So it didn't go out until Saturday, but I just felt guilty because the audience that I've got is, is obviously waiting for something and the rest of it. But the, the point is the point I'm trying to make is that it's, I I found, it, I found it really interesting in, in growing my own ability to speak as well as finding an audience of people that finds value from it. And I think equal parts, those two things have been great. I'm a far better speaker now, but I also have this amazing audience of, of people that listen that I'm grateful for, but I also enjoy adding value. So and I genuinely enjoy adding value and there's no hiding that in a hundred hours of context. So, um, it's been great, but how about you so far? Cause it's a, it's a short journey you've been on so far, right?
1: Yeah. And it's, and I like really echo, you're right. I echo a lot of the things that you say, you know, it's so, it's so humbling talking to these people that have done such incredible work, and then maybe it's the first time they've ever talked about it on a podcast and you're like, "How have you never spoken about the incredible things you've done before
0: yeah
1: and so I think that that is a real privilege to be able to shine the light on people that just really haven't been promoted and uplifted yet um, the the things that I find difficult about the podcast though is and and this is me being really open and honest right Mm. is that as you were saying before we interview really high-profile people on the Royal Society of Medicine's podcast right you know they are the the creme de la creme of people (laughs) you know that get get, and the sign of process it has to go through the RSM they have to be okay with it then you know obviously they they listen to the podcast before they go live and so
0: And the edits and the amends, yeah, and 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 all of that. So
1: it has to be really good. And I sometimes find myself not voicing my in like my opinion on the podcast alongside them because I'm almost not. I don't want to say starstruck, you know that thing that you really, you're you're like you're an expert. What does my opinion on what you're doing matter? How does this matter here? And so i'm finding that a real challenge that i'm trying to get over is like mm. how to how to bring in my my opinions and my thoughts on what they're doing without without you know trying to patronize their work i get
0: that or- I get, I get that. And the thing, and the thing is like, but this comes back to what you were saying before about imposter syndrome, right? Everyone's got it. They probably can't believe they're in the position that they're in, but I I actually hear that a lot from, from people that I've either managed or line managed or whatever in in different roles that, you know, they find speaking tough because they kind of think, well, who am I to put my opinion on this Mm. stuff? What if I'm asked something I don't know or like all the rest of it. But what I say to them, I guess it'd be the same advice here, which is that you still have a view. You have a view based on the experience you have. And as long as you're not overclaiming or saying that your view is right, you still have a view that you're entitled to because you're Marla that's done this, that and the other. And that's your view of it. Or that I want to ask you this question because this question is of interest to me because of the position that I've got and all the rest of it. I think that there is no one on earth that you don't deserve to ask a question to or to voice your opinion to, because it's just exactly that. And I think if it is controversial, you have the advantage of fresh eyes. You are and young. edit. <laughs> and you have the advantage of an edit. And goodness me, has that caught me a few times.
1: <laughs> i like, do you know what? I almost wish someone else was editing for me because I do everything myself, right? So I... Yeah. I love editing and I love having the control of it but sometimes I'm a bit too critical of my own words yes. and, and and so I really like I, I love podcasting I wouldn't change it for the world I, I really enjoy having these conversations I just don't think that it's as easy as people you know from the surface people are like you know everyone has get a podcast and do it but as you're saying like The guilt, the stress, the, you know, we need to get one out. We need to get to the audience. I need to be having a really good conversation. You know, what am I going to be asking today? The prep that goes behind it, the finding people. It is as well. It's not as easy as it
0: looks. No, it's not, and that's why I have I have the greatest of respect to people that put podcasts together definitely. and that actually, you know, do it on a consistent basis, deliver for an audience, give back, add value. Don't expect anything from it, and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. Don't talk about themselves all the time. You know, it's it's I've got so much respect for people that do it, but I think all of that stuff pays such dividends when you get a loyal audience and 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 people that actually respect you for what you do. I mean, it's it's yeah, it do, it does open up a lot of opportunity and definitely. Yeah. And I think
1: I think the average podcast series is like 6 episodes or something. So most of them Yeah. Collapse
0: exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's so difficult is that
0: consistency. It's that consistency and shameless plug. I mean, this is literally one of the reasons we started some is because to put out consistent content is so annoying, frankly, and it's annoying for health tech companies. It's annoying for VC funds. It's annoying for everybody. And so, you know, being a, a content agency, PR media agency as well. Like we just have an entire worksheet, which does this for people because uh. like in health tech, you're too busy, like changing the world to talk about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Like, Why not just turn up on a phone call once a week? Anyway, that's my uh, shameless sales plug.
1: No, no, but Um, you know what? The work you're doing is super important because otherwise people don't feel like, and this is one thing I've really taken away from podcasting, right? Is that you have the ability to make people feel like they're not trying to do this alone. Yes. That, Like you are in a shared mission. Yes. And people are really on board to try and change healthcare and try and change what we're doing for patients and I think that's magical right like I don't even have a better word for that I just think it's lovely when people are like I felt like you know I was the only one that was trying to change the care services in this way but it's so lovely to hear that someone else has the same passion um yeah
0: we're on the same page mate (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, if ever you need a hand, if you wanna if you wanna uh decompress and just tell me how annoying podcasting is, just give me a call. <laughs> like, There'll
1: be many like, calls coming. No, no I, you know it's it's great. We're gonna have so many stories coming in the future. And I'm super interested to see what you know V2 of podcasting looks like. Cause I'm sure this won't say like oh, it'll this. be
0: some like augmented reality, like have them sitting in your living room. <laughs>
1: like, Please no, they're not coming into my living room. No, room you'll, be flat,
0: you'll be in theirs. You'll be like, in theirs through augmented reality in fact what a great what a great idea that is let's jump on that
1: i know right okay write that down cut this out before <laughs> i'll edit this
0: out yeah this is the value of editing right perfect oh marl it's been a pleasure um i've got to jump on the call but um yeah great having you on and uh, i'm sure we will chat very soon
1: lovely talking with you thanks so much for having me on
0: you're very welcome